Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> we're here to start talking about what does it mean to be human? How are we human? I don't know. We're still figuring it out. We're figuring a lot of things out. I'm Craig. <laughs> and I'm Carla. And we're trying to understand being human from the perspective, perspective of God's story in the Bible. It's more than just being a species like Homo sapiens. We think it's about community, about relationships, and about welcoming. We're figuring it out, still. So, join us as we do. Because we're not holier than you. Oh, I didn't want that to rhyme. And this is Craig, and this episode is brought to you by Meg's Coffee. Yes. If ever you need to spend some time with your spouse, your partner, and have that friendly conversation, you can trust Meg's Coffee. Not available in all locations, all households, or even all families. <laughs> we actually were at a local coffee house, uh, and we had op an opportunity to visit with one another about today's episode, which is called All in the Family. And Meg, Meg sprung for the coffee, so that's At that's least for happened. me. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, we uh, had the opportunity to think about um, the ideas that um, in our world, if we have no theology, we oftentimes fill it up with some sort of theology or way of thinking that becomes a religion to us that may not have God in it at all. And so that's a little bit about what we're thinking, partly because you're reading a book uh, by Brian McLaren, his most recent called Faith After Doubt. And that caused you to think of a couple of uh, thoughts there in regard to this idea that in the absence of a theology, we might create our own based on some portions of theology. Yeah, maybe not even some portions of theology. I think the way I describe it is um, is I, what he states, and I think what I kind of generally have believed for a long time is that human beings are religion-making creatures. You know, we will we will create ideas or ideologies things to um they, hold sacred yeah well they, they they speak deeply to us and we give ourselves sometimes to them fully and so actually i, I think there's a competition of different religions and and maybe we find one that you know satisfies our curiosity or meets an immediate need and that becomes something that we pour ourselves into and and perhaps those religions can be things like um, you know, well, they, they are things like materialism and capitalism and um, any anything probably with an ism behind it. Eating too much perhaps could become hedonism. Isn't that what that's called? Well, yeah, yeah, bit? yeah. You know, and, yeah. and so probably anything that, be, uh, anything that becomes an ism might become a religion, I guess. Okay. And um, I remember... Uh, professor friend of mine she showed me an essay by one of her students who said uh one of the one of the unique traits of the earliest 20th century was the creation of many isms <laughs> okay and i thought well that's, okay, that's an interesting way to put it a 20th century um 
vehicle for us to think about, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, and it can be anything, you know, vegetarianism, uh, conservationism, conservatism. Okay, Okay. um, liberalism. Liberalism. And it goes on and on and on. And we've got, you know, classical theism, which is, you know, where where most religions fall. But but human beings tend to want to gravitate toward that ism. It's a larger story. It's what's called a meta narrative. It's the yeah. it's something that gives our actions and our our lives a sense of purpose. You know, we're working toward this thing. Right. And in the absence of God or or a sense of something bigger than ourselves, we might narrow it down to what is most important important to us? Is that what Brian McLaren and you are maybe uh, thinking? Yeah, Brian and I have been thinking about this together for a long time. <laughs> well, right. But, but no, I, I, one of the points that Brian makes is he's, he, he does take a point to talk about um, some commonalities of religions. Okay. And, and I think, you know, it, when he, when, when he's quoting the author who he's, you know, discussing, he is speaking of recognized world religions. So we're talking about, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism, as well as uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and perhaps others as well. But, but I th- those are the big ones. Right. But I biggest. think all these other possible isms kind of fit into those as well. Okay. But define, the, 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 I'll, I'll just read the quote. Okay. Uh, McLaren writes, according to Jonathan Haidt uh, and other teachers of moral foundations theory, whatever our religion or politics we all use the same six basic lines of moral reasoning to defend our beliefs and opinions. Justice, compassion, purity, loyalty, authority, and liberty. People of a conservative temperament, theorists explain, often feel morally superior because they emphasize all six. Liberals or progressives, however, focus on two, justice and compassion. And then he goes on to talk about how these how these uh, other areas can really be skewed, where authority can be used as power over and manipulation. Mm-hmm. Purity can be defined as as again another source of power and manipulation to force certain behaviors in people, uh, and with the fear of exclusion if you're impure. Um, you know, there are the ideas of, of loyalty, that it's this group think that you cannot have an independent thought. If you do, you're you're out. And so these uh, conservative um, movements, I mean, as this theory goes, really is on constraint and limitation and holding and manipulating people together. Okay. And the same thing happens with nationalism. Nationalism has the same characteristic, you know. Yes. Um, okay kind of conservatism tends to also would you say well I, or not necessarily true conservatism yeah i mean I, I i i struggle with conservatism and liberalism some of those some of those um labels yes. especially in in the religious sense is because you know there's lots of conservatives who are wonderful people and i don't Correct. really want to paint them with such a broad brush okay but especially when we talk about some of these things like you know white supremacy uh, when we talk about nationalism, uh, it's pretty much that way. When we talk about fundamentalism of any stripe, you know, mm-hmm. it goes that way. Uh, and you know, some some types of conservatism might seem to go that way. But these days, good old fashioned conservatism of the '60s and '70s was kind of a nice thing to have back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least politically. 
so in in the thinking of uh, this moral foundations theory, um, these these six basic lines, it sounds like there's a an emphasis by some groups as opposed to others on certain aspects of these six justice, compassion, purity, loyalty, authority, and liberty. And we, we were talking a little bit about that idea of purity and how in the uh, Hebrew Bible, these uh, verses that talk about impure and pure and purification really have to do with um, uh, being just good hygiene. Right. You know, it's just really about good hygiene. And if there's mold in the walls, then you need to clean it out and you need to move out for a while. Or if, if, if somehow, you touched a dead body, you have to like move outside the camp for seven days or something. Right. Like that. And wash yourself. Right. And, it, and, and in some ways there was a, maybe a ritualistic sense to the cleansing, but it was really there. These, these rulings were there to help keep everybody healthy and hygienic. And so, and, and being impure was not a sin. Right. I mean, somebody had to bury the dead people. It wasn't a sin to bury dead people, but somebody had to do it. And the person then was in touch with an infection or, or something and so they but in 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 today's world when when i've heard this whole idea of purity culture it was all about um sexuality and about remaining pure and chaste before marriage and i would suppose it also means within marriage um but it also has some other aspects to it but it has become like it's a sin that somehow there's sin connected to purity. Yeah, impurity becomes a sin. Impurity which, becomes a sin, which really isn't a part of the Hebrew Bible as much as what you do with your impurity. So if you're impure because you've touched a dead body, you've got mold in the house, interacting with people, becoming you know it, it that's where the impure, that's where the sinful action is. Uh -huh. It's like you're bringing the contagion back. Okay. And so this the, the sexualization of purity isn't really what it's about. I mean, okay. Um, and the sexualization of the term purity, um, again, it, it's usually used as a way primarily to manipulate women and girls. In in this in this sense of it, yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, that, um, and uh, Richard Beck makes the point in one of his books on the topic of purity, how it's weird that it's, you know, there's so many scriptures about us being forgiven. Isaiah uses the phrase whiter than snow. We're pure uh, when we're forgiven. But for some reason, when this, when it's sex, they're never pure again. They're, they, they never re-virginized, you know? Uh, right. And I've actually heard that there's something within that whole purity movement where, there's an attempt to try and make you pure again. It's called forgiveness. I mean, well, yes, but that's yeah. not what it is. <laughs> I, know, in I, know, that. I don't, I, know, I, know. I don't know what it is, so. but I've heard of it. So, but that's one of those ways that I would say a kind of evangelicalism or fundamentalism uses that, that word purity, which in mm -hmm. and of itself is a fine word. Yeah. Right. But it can get uh, wrestled into something to manipulate. And something that takes it away from its actual use within the scripture. Right. So any of these moral uh, markers that were used for mm -hmm. identifying religions, they can all be good. I mean, liberty is good. Mm -hmm. uh, but liberty, you know, in the fundamentalist sense means you defend the liberty that you have 
it's not that you have the liberty to express individuality or a unique insight different from the masses. You know? <laughs> All right. Um, so, so um, in in his book also, Brian McLaren is kind of explains and goes into a little bit better of an idea of how he has seen this maybe going off in a direction in which it wasn't meant to go within the biblical writers. Um, he was at that Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. He had gone in his role as a clergyman, actually wearing a collar, which I guess he doesn't do very often. And he was nearby when um, that car went through and uh, ended up killing a young woman. And so um, I can either read this or you can, this quote that he gives in his book that kind of helps lead to that. Mm -hmm. All right. So he writes in, in his book, Faith After Doubt. In the days after the event, I was given access to screenshots of the private communications among the fascist and white supremacist groups who organized the event and who were called, quote, very fine people, unquote, by the president. He puts that in parentheses there. These communications convinced me that when people leave traditional religious identity behind or subordinate it to a political or racial ideology, they don't advance to a blissful secular harmony. No, we humans just as easily shift the sense of identity we once found in a passionate stage one or stage two religious faith into what we might call quasi-secular religions like racism, nationalism, fascism, classism, and other isms. So that's the end of that passage, but there's this idea of stage one or stage two religious faith. And how is that connecting to this idea of all in the family? So we'll probably take a few leaps here, but let me try to define what he's talking about in the stages. Um, so in, in the book, Faith After Doubt, he's talking about four different stages of, of spiritual pilgrimage. And, you know, beginning with this um, simple childlike faith that is based on dualism. So there's right and wrong, good and bad, uh, and really authority becomes really important. It's parents, it's teachers, it's people saying this is good, this is bad. And kind of black and white. Right. And and also connecting not only to uh, spiritual pilgrimage, but also just intellectual development, human development. I mean, most educators go through their classes on psychological, you know, psych, educational psychology and yeah. pick up these things. Um, and it's it's a stage. It's 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 effective stage for creating a, a fundamental basis. But and we're then, meant to grow beyond that stage. Well, usually, and then, right? yeah, and you can't really push it, but it happens, and you have to have a way for it to move forward. So Brian McLaren uses this phrase: "Doubt is the passageway." So we we're, when we find ourselves in a dilemma of between good and bad, and we don't know what to call this thing, it's kind of in a gray area. All of a sudden, we realize the dualism of good and bad doesn't fit the situation and so it was like wait i doubt that it's bad or i doubt that it's good i don't know what to do and that creates a little bit of a turmoil and it moves into a more complex understanding of the world so we go from simple to complex right so from simplicity to complexity uh complexity uh acknowledges what's out there but still has this impetus to to, to do something with it um you know to make a practical or a pragmatic faith so I acknowledge the gray. I acknowledge that the black and white isn't there. And rather than get too tied up in pursuing the grayness and kind of that ambiguity, 
I still want to make sense of things. I still want to do what's right. I still want to stay away from what's wrong. I want to still act in faith. Um, and act with good intentions. Yeah. And, and then comes the next layer of perplexity. But doubt, again, begins yeah. to move us. It's like, toward... right. So I'm doing these things. They might be based on tradition. They might be, you know, these pragmatic things. But then you begin to wonder, what is the real basis? What's what's why am I doing this? What's kind of the transcendent big story that's guiding this? What's the purpose for what's this? What's the purpose? What's the goal? And it leads into this perplexed stage three. And perplexity, you know, if you want to read it, it's all throughout the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. Ah, good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's filled with perplexing questions and wondering if God's really there. Uh, perhaps the most horrible and frightening and sad psalm of all time i think it's psalm 88 which ends my and darkness is my only friend mm. um you know so there there that's this this deep um perplexed state is a part of the biblical tradition which is kind of at least, least the hebrew biblical definitely tradition. yeah I don't know if we do we see it as much in the New Testament. You know, it might be with it might be only if we impose it on a character like Nicodemus, who's sneaking around at night trying to find out what's going on with Jesus. Okay. So um, anyway, going back. And then stage four is this point of harmony where you know we get beyond the perplexity, and we begin to integrate all these different life experiences and these questions and understand some things won't be answered, some things we learn that were black and white still make sense, uh, and we can actually function. Uh, in a state of harmony. But it's possible to get stuck in some of these earlier stages, I'm guessing. Yeah, McLaren makes a point, or makes a statement somewhere in the book, and I can't remember exactly where, that he kind of assumes that most ev evangelicalism is stuck in stages one and two. Okay. It's like, I don't know the answer, but we can do something, uh, which is stage two, okay. or everything's black and white, stage one. And this is the way it is, right. and this is the way it's got to stay. Right. This is right. the way it's got to be. Okay, so so then, um, what what is it that got you to thinking this idea that there's something about all in the family here as we think well, about God's image? I think it's that second quote about Charlottesville. Okay, and how how McLaren makes the point that you know if we don't have um, you know, if, how did he call it? He says, when people leave traditional religious identity behind or subordinate it to a political or racial ideology, they don't advance to a blissful secular harmony. Right. And we end up with quasi-secular religions like racism, nationalism, fascism, classism, and other isms. And so it got me wondering um, if this image of God that's in everybody and we and it's most full when we come together and we we we're, we're united one of the ways that the church throughout history has maybe tried to emphasize that is um using either heaven as a carrot or the fear of hell as a stick mm -hmm. um to kind of either draw you or beat you right towards right. something and then there's another side of 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 you know christians who want to recognize and honor you know, the beauty of all these different religions, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism mm -hmm. and on and on, you know, Islam and, and, and we have all these religions. So why would we share the gospel? Why would we share the good news of Jesus to join us? I mean, it's not going to, it's not guaranteeing somebody, um, a place in heaven or a place or, out of hell, a place <laughs> out of hell. Yeah. 
I mean, especially if we think along lines of Rob Bell's idea of love wins in the end, mm -hmm. which tends towards a universalism idea, right. or even C.S. Lewis, who tends towards universalism a bit, uh, with at least the free will of the individual saying, God, no, I know you want me in heaven, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Well, and I even think, I, I believe, I hope I'm ascribing this to the right person. I, I seem to remember Ron Sider saying, all truth is God's truth. Oh, right, right, right. And so it's like, well, if there's truth in another place other than within Christianity, then that's God giving that truth to us. So I guess... The question comes to me, why do we, why would we want to, what, what's the motivation and the consequence of sharing the gospel of Jesus? Well, I don't know if you want me to answer that or if we want to save that for discussion. Well, um, well what are some of the questions along with that then? That, that What does it get you thinking about? Um, well, I don't know off okay, the top yeah. of my head. I mean, it it makes me think, um, well, why would we have maybe the four spiritual laws? Or why would we send missionaries to Africa or Mexico or someplace else yeah. to make, or, or as one person I remember saying, when my cousin's baby was going to be baptized as a baby, or baby, I'm sorry, I repetitive there he said oh we're gonna go make the baby a christian and i thought oh wow that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> um you know so yeah it's like if if we're not saying oh well you're gonna get into heaven or you're gonna at least stay out of hell by believing in jesus yeah, yeah. what's the and, purpose and and without getting competitive i mean i there's a part of me that would like to say being a part of God's reign and realm is, well, this one I can easily say, it's better than fascism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, uh, the t-shirt, the be. gospel is anti-fascist. I believe that. I've um, not seen that t-shirt. I've worn it. I don't remember okay. it. I'm anyway, sorry. <laughs> so, and then, you know, the gospel is better than capitalism. The gospel is better than liberalism, socialism. You name the ism that becomes that religious ideology. The reign and realm of God is better than that. At least, and that's, and for me, I guess I have to just say that's a statement of faith. Because I could also, plenty of people could look at the ch history of the church and go, that was horrible. That was terrible. That was terrible. And I, then it puts me on the defenses and say, yeah, but that's not the reign and realm of God. So what is the reign and realm of God? Maybe that's the question to answer. What does that mean? What is the reign and realm of God? It's love and justice. Love and justice. And then does that say that we're not dealing with all six? Was it love, justice, compassion, purity, loyalty, authority, and liberty that we're not dealing with all six of those? Uh, well, because liberals or progressives tend to focus on justice. Perhaps. And I mean, um, I don't have it written down as one of the scriptures to think about, but think about. Um, so the, the, the young lawyer comes up to Jesus, mm -hmm. says, what, what must I do to be saved? And, you know, Jesus kind of drills him on a few of the commandments. And he goes, right. I've done all those from my youth. Yes. And Jesus responds, um, you, you've got two. Do you remember? It's a, no, I'm not sure what oh, you're okay. getting at. So, so just say it. <laughs> okay. So anyway, he, uh, it, depending on Luke or you Matthew. Two, two commandments that are the greatest, right? Right. That's what you meant. Yeah. Okay. 
And the, the greatest commandment is to love God and love people. Right. And it's interesting. He asks, which is the greatest? And Jesus says, well, there's two. <laughs> but it's it's bound up in love. Mm-hmm. Which... And when when he tell when the story is in Luke, it goes with who's my neighbor, and it goes into the, the Good Samaritan. Which what does love look like? It looks like mercy. It looks like stepping out of your way for it to do a kind act. I mean, it, but it looks right. like love. Right, right. <laughs> and love is scary. It seems to a lot of people. We're, we we find it easy to love those who we know within like our families mm-hmm. and our are like groups but jesus said well what is it to those people who love those who already love them what about loving those beyond you right right which shouldn't be so hard since we're all god's children and we all bear god's image you know one of the one of the placards and t-shirts that was making the rounds over the summer with the anti-racism rallies was a quote from James Cone that said, justice is love is what love justice is what love looks like in public. Hmm. No love. Yeah. Justice is what love looks like in public. Um, You know, or another one I've seen is um, justice is love out loud. I mean, it's, it's love making its way known. You know, that's what love looks like. Looks love, like justice. Love is a verb, we've often yeah. said in the yeah. past. Yeah. Love is not just something that is quiet. You have to declare it. And you may declare it in a simple sort of a way that's quiet in a, in a sense, like serving someone else. But there's also ways to make that love known in a big way. And, and maybe that's what we could say weddings are often like, or maybe a, a birthday party. We're, we're sharing our love in a, in a bigger way. And, and I wonder, I wonder if that's, I mean, liberals don't very often, or progressives in faith don't very often get caught into arguments about why their religion's better than somebody else's. Okay. I mean, right. Because, okay. because there's kind of a sense that, we're not trying to be the boss of everybody, I guess right. might be what liberals might be kind of thinking. But I think there's a point at which there are certain lines that we draw and say, love and compassion, you know, love and justice. These are, those are fundamentals. These are very, very important. Um, and we find love from uh, a point of faith, love most fully expressed in the life death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. Because he certainly showed love in situations that were uncommon for Jewish men of his day, as well as showing love to people that were uncommon, uh, people to whom a Jewish person would show love, such as the woman at the well or mm-hmm. the woman caught in adultery. And when, it comes, <laughs> and when it comes to isms, he stared down the nationalism of the Jewish officials, and he stared down the fascism of Rome. True. And took Never it on. I thought of it that way. Um, he, he took those on. Some people might say he lost, but anyway. Yeah, and that's what he was willing to do, uh, is to lose and 
that's how he won. <laughs> right. In fact, he says something about that. What is it? People who are willing to lose their life shall gain it, or <laughs> lest the seed die. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes, yes. So, well, we had a couple other scriptures, and maybe the way our conversation has flowed, I don't think the one from the Psalms is necessarily that crucial. But the one from Ephesians is yeah, a little better for I, that. I think, yeah. So, you you. Can I read it, or do you want to yeah, read it? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. So I uh, was looking at Ephesians 3, 15 through 18. And again, this gets to the idea of pulling, you know, everybody's being pulled together into this love. Um, that's, that's, kind of, that's the good news, maybe, way to put it that way. So Paul writes, um, and I'm reading, I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, I believe. No, I'm not. I've got the New do you have the new right? You can I have a new revised. You read standard it. Version. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah. And is it okay to include verse fourteen? Oh, if you must. Um, because that's kind of where this seems to that's start. Right. Is for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and then Paul goes on to say, "From whom every family in heaven on and on earth takes its name." And I'm going through what verse again? Seventeen. Eighteen. Eighteen. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, God may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through God's spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was through verse 19, okay, actually. Okay, that's fine. And, and it, basically, it says love is the key piece here, which goes back to those moral principles, those six different pieces. And sure, authority might be helpful. Purity is a good deal. Liberty is nice. Um, Purity? Or loyalty. Yeah, yeah loyalty, loyalty is nice. Yeah, all those things, they're, they're fine things. Mm -hmm. But Paul is drilling down to the basis of all those things, the one thing that's most crucial in it is love. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by that phrase, from whom all the families of the earth are named. You know, God, and, and, and I, I take that as, um, I don't want to say predestined, or how do I point it, preordained, but there's something about God's uh, imprint that is on every, not just nations and tribes within nations, and not just languages within tribes, but every household, every family, you know, boils it down to one of the smallest social groups there are in every family, that their, their existence, the essence of who they are, that comes from God. Right, right. And that we might be able to be rooted and grounded in love. I mean, that yeah, yeah. that that's where that whole idea is, that there's that, there's that basis of where we grow right. and or, or from where we take our um, our nutrition like so, like a plant. So mm -hmm. I guess one of the thoughts I had, you know, it just in this conversation is. And I don't want to reduce it to such because there's other ways of looking at it, but kind of the way we've talked, at least I'm feeling is evangelism to a certain degree is a defensive strategy. A defensive strategy of a so group of people there's there's a ton the of religions out there yeah and some of them are incredibly destructive and unjust 
they will devour individuals and societies and just wreak havoc. Okay. Um, and it's almost like, well, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> so here's another gospel. You know, here's another. I, I almost want to defensive in that those other religions out there, fascism, right, racism, all okay. those. It it's, a, it's an onslaught. The quasi religions. Yeah. It's an onslaught. They keep coming. And and how do we how do we defend say, defend against them? Against them. Yeah. Well, yeah. How do we how do we stand up against that? Yeah. And it's how do we and it say can't be that? With, I, no, this is not what we stand for. And it's a proclamation of love. Which is probably even better than saying, Well, our religion's better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> because then a proclamation of love hopefully would be something that is lived out loud, that is rooted and grounded in God's justice and God's compassion as we see it in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, as you pointed out earlier. And my hunch is most people would see love living out, being lived out loud, whether it's acts of simple kindness or social justice, to be nice. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a good thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you would hope. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. But I think it has to be real. It has to be evident. It has to be like hands-on stuff, too. Right. And so that might be kind of the idea is what, what can we, as followers of Jesus, as not just individuals, because, of course, this is something that is we, we do in our individual daily lives, but also as a larger body of believers, what do we do to do those nice things? <laughs> that sounds those so simple, love, but, yeah. but, but those yeah. loving right. things, what, what are the ways in which we stand up to the isms that oftentimes preach more of a closed idea of who can, is in and who is out and who may even preach hatred of the other. Right. What do we need to do? How do we do that? What, what are the ways? And, and how do we do it together? Because it's really hard to do by ourselves. And in a way, this is like evangelism in the sense that we are bringing about the word who is Jesus for in the beginning was the word and the word was God and was with God. And we're bringing that word to others. And so you started with first John there or John one, John. and it's really good to go on. And the word dwelt among us. Yes. So it's almost not like we're bringing Jesus into anything. We're just pointing out Jesus who's already dwelling among us. Right. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah. Right. So how do we bring that dwelling of Jesus to our neighbors? How do we bring that indwelling God who's become flesh and who we hopefully are incarnating as we go through our days and I'm bringing it out one of my young life things, the incarnational ministry. What does it mean to incarnate Christ in the world today? I guess that's what we're trying to think about. Okay. 
couple. I think. I think. Are, are we? Are we? Any closing thoughts? Because I. Well, you have some questions, and right. I guess it would just be, what, what will motivate people? Because for some people, it's oh gosh, I I don't want to go to hell. I don't. I do want I, to be in heaven. So what is the motivating? Factor, I guess, might be a word that would help people say, yeah, that's what I want to do in the here and now. That's important now as well as in my future. So I guess that's kind of maybe one of the questions we might want to think about. And what maybe does it mean to be in the reign and realm of God? And when we talk, when Jesus talks about uh, for the kingdom of God, or he, he might have said, actually, the reign of God has come near. And we talk about the already and the not yet. How do we live in that? And how do we share that idea with others? So I think that's what we might want to talk about on Sunday when we get together. So I'm Carla. I'm Craig. And we are not holier than you, but this is what we were thinking about. See you later. All right. Well, hey, thank you for uh, listening to our conversation. Not holier than you. (laughs) Uh, And boy, we really like that title because I think it's true. Correct. <laughs> I thought you have to say it so quickly. Oh, I'm sorry. I know I'm not holier than anybody else. Oh, I thought else you meant here. me. Okay. No, no, no. So I'm talking to, about myself. Uh, so we're a couple of pastors. Yep. We pastor a small congregation of Anabaptist Mennonites here in, in Idaho. Meridian, Idaho. Meridian, Idaho. Yep. We're just learning this stuff and trying to figure it out along with you. So if you if we say something that's heretical or horrible or you think we're just wrong, that's okay. We probably we might be. We're learning as we go. Well, I don't think we're heretical in any way, but... um, (laughs) I try a little. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, we are glad that you joined us, and we hope that you'll join us again. Great. All right. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye.